Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. How's it going out there? Hope you're doing okay, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Ishmael Reed, author of a play called The Slave Who Loved Caviar. And uh, Warhol really disses uh, Basquiat, said he was dirty, he would never sleep with him, uh, that he was a nuisance. And in one situation, and Warhol admits this in, in one of the books I use as a bibliography, part of my bibliography, he assaults him in, in Italy. He slaps him. And then he he uh, sort of like brags about it, boasts about his slapping of Basquiat. So I, I say these guys, these people, this decadent cult down there, killed this kid. He's only in his 20s. He committed suicide. I mean, he did, died of an overdose. And one of his girlfriends, the only one, Powell, the only one who really cared about him, asked Warhol for an intervention. She said his drug habit has gotten out of, uh, out of control. And... Uh, we're all equipped. Uh, well, maybe he wants to be the first one to go out early. All right. That was Ishmael Reed. His play is called The Slave Who Loved Caviar, available now in print from Archway Editions. The Slave Who Loved Caviar is a reexamination of the relationship between artist Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol. This is a relationship that is already well-documented one of the most iconic and intensely analyzed partnerships in the history of art. And Ishmael Reed in The Slave Who Loved Caviar delivers an unsparing and deeply researched perspective on 
this relationship between Basquiat and Warhol and its many meanings. The Slave Who Loved Caviar was the subject of controversy during its original run in late 2021 and early 2022 at the theater for the new city in the East Village. I had a very interesting conversation about all of this and more with Ishmael Reed, a great honor to have him here on the program. And that conversation is coming up in just a bit. A reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this program. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and subscribe. Once again, it is free. Likewise, there is an Other People Patreon community. I would love it if you would join the Other People Patreon. If you listen to this show regularly, if you get something from it, if you want to help it continue into the future, head on over to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the novel Nonfiction by Julie Meyerson, a recent guest on this program. Nonfiction is the official January pick of the Other People Book Club. I really loved this book. I had a great conversation with Julie Meyerson. You should listen to it and you should read nonfiction, a haunting and deeply moving novel about damage and addiction, recovery and creativity, compassion and love. That's nonfiction, the new novel by Julie Meyerson available from Tin House. Okay, so my guest once again is Ishmael Reed. He is the author of a play called The Slave Who Loved Caviar, available now in print from Archway Editions. Ishmael Reed is the author of over 25 books, including Mumbo Jumbo, Yellowback Radio Brokedown, Conjugating Hindi, Why No Confederate Statues in Mexico, and most recently, Malcolm and Me, and Why the Black Hole Sings the Blues. Ishmael Reed is also a publisher, television producer, songwriter, radio and television commentator, lecturer, and has long been devoted to exploring an alternative black aesthetic, the trickster tradition or neo-hoodooism. Ishmael is a regular contributor to Counterpunch and a founder of the Before Columbus Foundation. He taught at the University of California, Berkeley for over 30 years, and he is the only person to be nominated for the National Book Award in two categories in the same year. It's a thrill and an honor to have Ishmael Reed here on The Other People Show. And I'm very pleased to get to share our conversation with all of you right now. So here we go. This is Ishmael Reed and his play, One More Time, is called The Slave Who Loved Caviar. In my 20s, I had arrived in New York in 1962 with a, a laundry bag that I paid for with, I think, a dime with all my belongings and had no prospects. Uh, I did get a job through the Hospital Workers Union, 1199. 
And by 1967, I was uh, being celebrated in French restaurants. Uh, my name was in the uh, gossip columns. Uh, I was associating with uh, the uh, literary, uh, famous literary figures like Robert Lowell and going to places where Arthur Miller and all these people were present and invited to parties uptown. And uh, I could see where a young person could be corrupted by that kind of scene because I think New York, unlike the West, has that old European attitude toward artists and genius and talented people. And so you're sort of like smothered with affection. So I said if I'd remained in New York, I would have died of an overdose of affection. Uh, my working class origins, I think, uh, saved me from that fate because uh, working class people are great detectors of phoniness and false uh, flattery. And so I had an excellent uh, companion in Carlo Blank, who was an avant-garde dancer and a star at uh, Judson Church. And we decided to leave uh, New York in 1967. I went to Los Angeles. I said I wanted to go to the most barbaric section of the country, and we settled. It's where I am right now. Los Angeles. <laughs> so you know what I mean. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think I think uh, you know in my play, I imagine what would have happened if Basquiat had returned, had gone to Haiti instead of returning to New York. And he said at one point that New York was killing him, and that was true. New York killed him. Well. The play is called The Slave Who Loved Caviar, and I want for listeners who might be new to uh, new to it to understand its life cycle uh, on mm -hmm. the stage. It ran briefly at the Theater for the New City in December of 2021 into 2022 right. before it was pulled by the mm -hmm. producer who had what she described as a, quote, emotional conflict mm -hmm. of interest. Can you just talk a little bit about the play's run and what happened? Well, we got a very good reception, even though some of the uh, Broadway theaters were lacking in audiences or closed down altogether because of the virus. Uh, we had a very good attendance and good reviews and uh, enthusiastic receptions uh, from the audience. I think uh, what happened was I ran against ran up against the the powerful Warhol Foundation which has millions at its disposal. I mean, maybe 200 million, <laughs> we're very wealthy. Uh, and they objected to a uh, flyer uh, that I, com I composed because uh, I was merely following Andy Warhol's technique of transforming uh, things. Uh, you know, so he transformed a photo of Prince and the, Photographer took it, took the Warhol Foundation to court, and she won in court. And then he, they have so much money, they appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that uh, his uh, transforming—I think he did a silkscreen of Prince—was all that much different from the original. So they lost in court. So I transformed uh, a photo that uh, 
Warhol took over Basquiat attired only in a jockstrap. And I ran across a painting in which Basquiat repeated the words pimps, excuse me, leeches, uh, parasites, leeches, parasites. So I, I covered his body with leeches and I put Warhol's photo inside of each leech. And they said they were going to sue. And I sent I sent that uh, I sent that uh, the original to uh, Mia. They said we could the poster I designed sent to Mia. They said we we couldn't use that. Then we ran into uh, a threatened lawsuit from Anina Nosei. That's not a real name. Who had set up a, a basement studio for uh, uh, Basquiat in her a building and. Uh, According to this was this was back in the nineteen. I mean, this is the eighties yeah, when he was working yeah. and alive. Yeah, she brought him in from the streets. He was a graffiti artist, and uh, that's that's how the the legend goes. And uh, she set him up there, and uh, people who visited uh, the basement where he was painting said he was treated like a slave, and it was like a dungeon. And he himself complained that he was her victim, and that she sold paintings that were not finished. And she would bring in these society, these uptown people, and they would gawk at him, sort of like the French Angel. Uh, not the French Angel, but that uh, there was a movie about some freakish guy that people, these society people would go and see and gawk at. I compare that to Otabenga. Otabenga was a twa, or what people call pygmy. And they brought him to the Bronx Zoo because they couldn't figure out whether he was human or an animal. And even the New York Times said he seems to be enjoying himself in there. So I compared him to uh, this uh, this twa who eventually committed suicide. You know, the kids were taunting him. They were throwing things at him. He eventually couldn't, couldn't survive that situation. So uh, I was quoting from other sources about her treatment of Basquiat. And then she threatened to sue. Uh, she threatened a lawsuit. And she got Linda Yablonsky, who's a friend of hers, write this hit job in Art's uh, newspaper, which is circulated all over the world. Now, my, my, my uh, spouse, my partner, Carla Blank, directed the play. And during the intermission, I went in the lobby, and there she was standing with uh, Anina Nosei. I said, oh, boy, am I going to get it? And so we posed for pictures. She's very friendly. It turns out she's hard of hearing, so she didn't hear how she was described in the first act. <laughs> but then somebody sent her the script, and she threatened to sue. And so the play was supposed to return in February of last year. And uh, there's no reason for it to be shut down, except that uh, Crystal uh, felt that uh, it was attracting too much attention, and she was a friend of uh, Osei. So uh, I, ran, I was trying to portray... You know, you see, the official line that you get about Warhol comes in the form of this uh, play that was on Broadway. And I think they're going to make a movie out of it. And, uh, and the Warhol Foundation told us that they had their play. They had their version of Warhol. And it turns out that this guy, this is a New Zealander. I forgot his, I don't have his name in the hand, who did the play. Warhol is sanitized. He is like a sort of like a male nurse to the savage and primitive. Has to clean up after him and pay his debts. And uh, they take some liberties. 
they talk about uh, Warhol, uh, excuse me, Basquiat's drug habit, which is how Schnabel uh, uh, portrays him in that movie. Julian Schnabel, yeah. the artist and filmmaker. Yes, and they they, they don't mention that uh, that uh, Warhol was addicted to two drugs, which uh, was revealed by John Giorno in the Great Demon Kings, his his uh, book, where he talks about that Lower East Side decadent cult down there, led by Warhol and uh, William Burroughs. So they sort of clean him up. There's some amazing lines in that play where uh, Warhol says, well, uh, Basquiat, uh, why so much death in your work? I mean, he was a guy, I mean, he ran a death cult. I mean, there was Edie Sedwich and uh, a uh, dancer uh, who committed suicide. And when asked about their suicides, Warhol said, well, I wish I could have been there to film it. Uh, Herco, Herco was a dancer who was part of that, that, that circle. And uh, Ron Tabal said it was amazing the way he treated uh, some of the people, uh, some of the younger people. And Dotson Rader wrote in the newspaper that, uh, you know, the, the people, the young people around Warhol tend to die young. So here's this guy, and, and you know, he, he had, he did uh, photos of execute, uh, the electric chair. He paid for a photograph of a suicide victim that he got from the police, or he knew somebody in the police. I mean, he was really a, into some kind of death situation. But in the in the play, he's wondering why Basquiat is into so much death. And then at the end, we get a ebony and ivory ending. Remember that thing that Paul McCartney and uh, uh, Stevie Wonder did? Ebony and ivory. They're all sure, yeah. Yeah, they're all pals and making up and loving each other. And uh, Warhol really disses. Uh, uh, Basquiat said he was dirty, he would never sleep with him, uh, that he was a nuisance, uh, that, and, and in one situation, and Warhol admits this in, in one of the books I use as a bibliography, part of my bibliography, he assaults him in, in Italy. He slaps him. And then he, he uh, sort of like brags about it, boasts about his slapping of Basquiat. So I, I say these guys, these people, this decadent cult down there, kill this kid. He's only in his 20s. He committed suicide. I mean, he did, died of an overdose. And one of his girlfriends, the only one, Powell, the only one who really cared about him, asked Warhol for an intervention. She said his drug habit has gotten out of uh, out of control. And uh, Warhol quipped, uh, well, maybe he wants to be the first one to go out early. So this play of yours, and just to make sure that listeners remain oriented. The play that you were describing is not your play. It was a play, or it is a play and p- possibly a movie that is basically sanctioned by the Warhol Foundation. Whereas your play, The Slave Who Loved Caviar, is essentially attempting to offer a reappraisal of the relationship Absolutely. between Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol, which in the popular culture, in the movie made by Julian Schnabel about Basquiat. Also, I think among the, what do you call them? The art set, yeah. the, you know, the, the high end yeah. community mm-hmm. of art collectors mm-hmm. and art journalists. Mm-hmm. There is this impression that Warhol was the benevolent mentor mm-hmm. and father mm-hmm. figure to Basquiat. Mm-hmm. And your play argues that it was quite the opposite. Yeah, uh, and and Basquiat says that he said that uh, 
Warhol owes more to him than he to Warhol. And at one point he said that Warhol was lazy, even though uh, from that play, The Collaboration, you would think that they contributed equally uh, to this uh, collaboration, which was a flop, critically. But uh, uh, Boscout says the opposite. He said he got uh, Warhol to paint again. Warhol had, had stopped painting, and he got Warhol to paint again. And I read a few accounts where uh, Warhol's uh, reputation was on decline until he uh, encountered uh, Basquiat. And you don't have a vampire. As a matter of fact, uh, they both went, uh, uh, Warhol was really into vampirism. That was part of his nickname. His nickname was Drella. Drella, Dracula and Cinderella. And when I found out that that from Journal that uh, Warhol was a, a, a foot fetishist. I really worked on that Cinderella angle. So I traced the the Cinderella legend all the way back to the, uh, to the Egyptians. Okay. So his Warhol's nickname is Drella, which interestingly I spoke about with an author on this show, not six months ago. It was a novelist named Nicole Flattery who wrote a book Mm -hmm. called nothing special, Mm -hmm. which is a fictional reimagining of Andy Warhol's factory scene Mm-hmm. through the eyes of one of these young girls who worked there. So it's not, mm-hmm. Warhol barely even appears. I think he might appear kind of off camera almost once in the whole novel. It's it's about the sort of functionaries who made that place work and who were often mm-hmm. kind of taken advantage of. So, right, so right. just interesting that I'm talking about this again, but we had discussed his nickname Drella, which as you said, is a combination of Dracula and Cinderella. Dracula because he was into vampires, like he just liked that sort of thing. Well, uh, I don't know. As a as a poet, I really ran with that image and some of the uh, language around his relationship with Basquiat, in which uh, it was said that Basquiat offered him new blood. So that's why I have these uh, these vampire figures in the play because there's a lot of vampirism or, or images regarding vamp- vampirism and blood sucking and things like that in that relationship. And so I ran with that, um, where you got these, uh, the real Dracula, the son of Dracula, who's, uh, has an absent father, who's William Marshall and Blackula, which is shown in, the, in one of the scenes. And he, 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 he decides he wants to become a pop artist. And because if you can uh, make money from just, you know, using everyday objects, like, uh, you know, Warhol said that uh, you can find your art in a grocery store. Than anything in a grocery store like his art. He said he's been slaving all these centuries, buying paintbrushes and oils and working. He said, now, you know, he can do some pop art and it's much easier, which is what uh, Warhol said at one point. I mean, Warhol was a great deadpan comedian. I mean, you know, so they asked him, well, why are you always copying people's stuff? He said, well, it's easier. He wasn't, probably wasn't and lying. Never, no. <laughs> <laughs> he said it was easier. So, uh, so you know, I've c- combined a lot of the stuff, the Cinderella legend, and, and what we have in the play are two forensics uh, detectives who do a forensics examination of the relationship between Warhol and Basquiat. Okay, yeah, let's stop there, because I want people to get a sense of the play as it appears on the stage, you know, try to give a visual representation. You have these two forensic detectives, as you just mentioned. Their names are Grace and Raksha. 
mm-hmm. and they are working to, like you say, uncover the truth about this relationship between Basquiat and Warhol. And we get a lot of information about both of the artists and their relationship to one another through the dialogue between them. Mm-hmm. There is also, uh, what, what is it? Uh, Van Helsing is Van Helsing, the yeah, a detective, the lead detective who's sort of yeah. coming in to check on them. Yeah. And then the, the kind of forensics scenes are intercut with scenes featuring, uh, a guy named agent Antonio Wolf. And then mm-hmm. the, the vampire character, Baron DeWitt. Yeah. And you have those two guys talking, Baron DeWitt being a vampiric artist in search of new blood, uh, sort of a stand-in for the Warhol figure in your imagination. And what I found uh, really interesting as I was reading the play was learning about all of these things that I did not know. And I have to I have to cop to the fact that so much of the popular narratives around Warhol and Basquiat were sort of just lodged in my brain. Uh, I don't know if mm-hmm. I've given it that much thought, but I just sort of imagined, oh, they were buddies, and Warhol was kind of a mentor mm-hmm. figure. And this play makes you reconsider those notions pretty quickly. And there's a line in the play that I quite liked and which I underlined involving the issue of story ownership, which is a great theme of this play. And it's also a great theme of your work. Mm -hmm. And the line says, quote, until the lion tells the story, the hunter will always be the hero. Mm -hmm. And so this is among other things, an attempt to tell the story from the perspective of the lion. Yes. From, well, from, yes, from the lion, Uh, the lion probably being Basquiat, the hunter or Warhol. Yeah, yeah. I think I think his point of view is left out, and even though it's it's not so difficult to obtain, Vasquez, it was just ignored. It's you certainly know. there, and it's certainly there in his visual art. You point out oh, that eighty percent of the faces in Basquiat paintings are angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, they 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 tried to talk about his influences as coming his, his musical influences as coming from cool jazz. When he's more in the hot tradition, you know, the tradition of Armstrong and Fletcher Henderson and those uh, musicians who preceded Bebop, Charlie Parker is very light, you know, although he could he could get down when he wanted to. He could play gut bucket like in that uh, Kansas City series. But uh, he's more he's more aligned with the stuff that came before the cool. I mean, his stuff is very bold. And you know, in your face. And and their politics were different even. You know, Basquiat did the defacement about the uh, the assassination or the killing of a graffiti artist by the New York police while Warhol hung out with the uh, Reagans. Nancy Reagan did portraits of the Shah and, you know, these uh, dictators. Party, party with uh, the Reagan people. Uh, so they had ops, their, their politics were, were in opposition. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Basquiat and and Warhol met in New York. I mean, I want, I'm, I'm thinking of the movie where Basquiat was trying to sell his postcards, I think, or something to Warhol. I don't know how right. apocryphal that is or if it's true, but mm-hmm. they somehow crossed paths in New York and did develop some kind of friendship. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know whether you would call it a friendship. Uh, Basquiat would show up at uh, Warhol's uh, building or his home, and Warhol would tell him, tell his aides to tell Basquiat he wasn't in or, you know, didn't want to see him. I think what happened was, I think Warhol really exploited him. As a matter of fact, you know that uh, Basquiat paid Warhol rent. I did not know that until yeah, I read your and, play. <laughs> yeah, at, 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 at one point, Basquiat amuses, uh, well, maybe I'm just a flash in the pan. And Warhol says, if he's a flash in the pan, how am I going to get paid? <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, you know, he was living at the Ritz-Carlton. You know, see, he's a young kid. He didn't know how to handle money. I mean, he would paint in these Armani suits and everything and get paint all over them. So, I mean, he's like these young rappers, you know. They make, make millions of dollars, and then all of a sudden they're broke or assassinated. Same things, you know. Well, well and it's, a, it's, it's useful, and it's something else that this play does, is to put the relationship between Basquiat and Warhol into a cultural context in its time. Mm -hmm. And to also understand what the state of Andy Warhol's career was at that particular point in his life. His -hmm. career was not in ascent when he met Basquiat. His paintings were not selling the way that they once had, and his station in the culture uh, had diminished. And then he meets Basquiat, who is this young upstart graffiti artist. We kind of know the folklore around him as as this graffiti artist, Samo, in tandem with, oh God, I'm forgetting. Is it Al Diaz? I'm, mm-hmm. Is that who the other guy was? Yeah, Keith Herring? Yeah, I mean, just he was part of that graffiti yeah, artist yeah, yeah. scene and yeah. went by Samo. He tagged all of his graffiti in yeah. lower Manhattan with the SAMO, which yeah. was short for same old shit, right? Mm-hmm. And so against that... We have the rise of hip hop Mm -hmm. in lower Manhattan at that particular time. And you have that culture becoming mainstream and really igniting a lot of excitement Mm -hmm. in fans of music and art and all of it. 
So you can see how there might have been some opportunism in Andy Warhol embracing Basquiat and helping to advance him in some ways, collaborating with him. Well, you know, as, as somebody somebody who began his career in department stores and used some of the techniques he learned in uh, department stores uh, in his art, uh, he was aware of trends and brands. So he just hooked on to the latest thing, which happened to be, you know, these graffiti artists downtown. So I think that uh, he had a commercial... There was an entrepreneurial side of Warhol. He did own property, and he did see, you know, the value and the the idea of increasing the value of, of art. Where you get these middle class people didn't know any better, buying all these things, buying Brillo boxes. <laughs> and was Basquiat was a fan of Warhol's work as a young artist? Yes or no? I mean, I, my I don't. I, I think. I think. Uh, I think Basquiat was attracted to Warhol because he was famous. And I think uh, uh, Basquiat wanted to be famous. But after that, there's very little they had in common. As a matter of fact, uh, I think that Basquiat's career might have ended, you know, this uh, Eurocentric criticism. I don't I don't use it. I use a lower E, lowercase E, because I've been to Europe and uh Europeans are much more sophisticated about black artists and art than Americans. I mean, you know, I mean, jazz is like a, it, it, you find jazz in middle class homes in in Europe. So I think that uh, he challenged the this way of looking at art because there are traditions I point out in my play that uh, Basquiat uses that they can't identify. For I talked to a Native American named uh, Charlotte. To show, I think you pronounce her name, and she said that uh, she worked in an art supply. She worked in an art supply store, and Basquiat was also an employee there. And she turned him on to uh, Native American art. And if you look at uh, his paintings, you see teepees and pictographs. And she definitely, he was definitely influenced by Native American art. And they didn't identify that. They they weren't capable of identifying that because, as Charlotte Chauchet said, they probably looked down upon Native American art. He also uses Haitian imagery, Baron Samedi, all these different entities that you find in Haitian art, and they couldn't identify that. So they were looking at it from a European perspective. And I've also seen his, I mean, the guy could pay. I've seen his parodies of uh, so-called European masters. He does these great parodies of uh, their work. So he was uh, probably more sophisticated uh, then those uh, critics who call them a primitive, they, they were the primitives. Yeah. There's so many, I think, like you say, so much symbol, uh, symbolism in his work that people just didn't get. Right, right. They didn't pick up on it at all. And it's interesting as well to note, I mean, when, pe- when you try to make sense of this relationship between Basquiat and Warhol, they are such an odd couple. Like there is no, like on the surface of it, it's like, why are these two guys hanging out? Other than like one wants to be famous and a famous mm-hmm. artist and the other one is one. Mm-hmm. But there's also a huge age difference. Mm-hmm. Basquiat died at age 27. He was a mm-hmm. kid for all intents mm-hmm. and purposes mm-hmm. throughout the entire entirety of the relationship. There's, so there was a great power imbalance mm-hmm. in the relationship, not only in terms of Warhol's money and state of influence in the culture, but also in just in terms of life experience. 
Basquiat, like you said, he was wearing Armani suits and getting paint all over them. And he didn't really uh, know what he was up against, perhaps. Yeah, well, uh, he was overwhelmed. Yeah. And influenced by maybe some of the wrong people. Like uh, he said his favorite book was Junkie by William Burroughs. I mean, God, this is the great Demon King's uh, journal shows Burroughs as somebody who had an off-the-street heroin operation, where he could come off the streets and get, you know, get injected with heroin, and he'd always do the first injection because he didn't want to get AIDS. <laughs> so, you know, because one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the connections I try to make is that, or one of the uh, points I tried to make was that. It seemed that Basquiat was looking for a black mentor, an older black person. And I came to this play uh, while finishing up another play, and all of a sudden these coincidences began to pile up where Basquiat's name would come up. And finally, I was on a TV show, and one of the guests was a sculptor who, at one time, I think he had something in... Times Square or something. He's now very famous, but at, at the time, in the 80s, he was uh, delivering art supplies. And he delivered some supplies, I guess, to the basement where uh, Basquiat was painting. And Basquiat invited him uh, to a show, and he didn't show up. And then later I learned that when he came to San Francisco, he was, try- he was seeking out an older black painter named Ray Saunders, and uh, that didn't happen. So I said, this guy was looking for a mentor. And it was that walk to the subway when this sculptor told me about this. I said, all these things are adding up. Maybe I should write a play about Basquiat. Hmm. Well, that was it. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's another line in the book that I underlined, which speaks to what you were just talking about. And it has to do with Basquiat's youth. Mm-hmm and his very short life and the fact that he came from a troubled home. He, you know, you say Basquiat was even more like Cinderella than Warhol, abandoned by his father and a schizophrenic mother. Uh, And then later you say, quote, he thought an artistic family would substitute for his mother and father. Right. So this was a, this was a kind of an orphaned kid for all intents and purposes who was desperately in search of family. Well, you can tell I've been I've been in New York because I use a Freudian analysis. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I find it, yeah. I find it poignant. I find it poignant. Well, I think there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe you don't want to overstate it, but I do think there's more than a grain of truth. That that became his family. Now, his mother encouraged his uh, art. You know, she took him to museums and bought him books. I think she bought him the uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, like, or the, uh, excuse me, Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so. I mean, his stuff is, his, his drawings are excellent, you know, of the human body. Uh, but his father, I think, was one of these uh, bourgeois Haitians. Not, I don't know whether he's from Haiti. The mother was from Haiti. I think the father was from Jamaica, I believe. Or no, it was Puerto Rico. Oh, oh, Puerto Rico, yeah. Yeah. But he's one of these, like... I think he's one of these bourgeois guys who are anti-art, you know. I, I think you find it a lot in ethnic communities. You know, I'm getting correspondence from a famous writer right now who says, you know, her family does, you know, I said, well, that's ethnic communities. You know, so anyway, they didn't get along. And I think that he was looking for a substitute family, as you said. 
but he never really found a mentor, especially once the money started coming in. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, well, he, that was, starts- he was, you know, Mary, what's his name? Mary Boone? What's his name? The, one of his, I mean, he was, he was surrounded by corrupt people. I mean, his art dealer, who's sort of like uh, cleaned up in that collaborator, then she went to prison for tax evasion. You know, you know, she, you remember that story where she was was using money to buy luxurious uh, items and things, and he right. bought a car. But she was, you know, she she was a gallery owner and uh, one of his representatives. So he had a lot of corrupt people around him. Well, I, yeah, I think I've had this conversation on this show before. It's something I have noted over the years, like observing from afar the world of high art, mm-hmm. the trade of really expensive paintings mm-hmm. and the culture that surrounds it. That is an almost impenetrable scene for me. Like, how does this work? Mm-hmm. Who are the kingmakers in these communities? And how does an artist like Basquiat take off? Like, obviously, an association with Andy Warhol doesn't hurt. But it's just interesting to me the way that it happens, where mm-hmm. certain artists kind of get you know, they get blessed mm-hmm. and the, the money starts to become like absurd really quickly. And I think when the money becomes absurd, that's when bad actors tend to gravitate or, you know, show up and take advantage or try well, to take advantage. Well, he had his girlfriends who, who uh, exploited him. One of them sold that refrigerator to salaries for five. Oh, right. That he painted on. Yeah. But you, you know how it comes across in the collaborator, the play? She comes to, there's a, there's a, in, in the play, her name is Maya. She comes to uh, the loft there where Warhol's present. And she wants money. Uh, she wants uh, money to pay for an abortion because she's uh, pregnant by Basquiat, right? And the actual person couldn't have children, number one. And she says that she wanted the money to pay the rent. But they sort of like ease that in there, you know, this old, this black monster corrupting white women. You know, they have to kind of sneak that thing in there. Uh, it was to- totally corrupt. So I think, I think that uh, he paid in the end, he was, he was used by everybody. I mean, finally, they just drained him of his talent, his blood. And, uh, and then the critics uh, did the, uh, coup de, you know, the coup de grace, uh, the, uh, that morally safer the morally safer uh, sixty minutes, yeah, where he says, "Well, you know, the only thing now that he's dead of overdose, he's going to become famous or something like that." Just, just cruel, just cruel. There is as well a tradition that you mm-hmm. bring to the fore in this play of Western white artists who quote unquote go black when they, when they run out of ideas. (laughs) And you know, it's where it's not something I had put enough thought into, but it's like, you know, you talk about Picasso embracing African art. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. You talk about Irving Berlin stealing music from Scott Joplin. Uh, I think in, in the popular culture. Alexander's right time band. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elvis obviously, and I think in music is maybe where the culture it's more, uh, prevalent and where I've heard conversation about it is white musicians appropriating black well, musical idioms. They, they, uh, they got this thing on the, that premiered Sunday. True Detective with, uh, I don't know if you saw this, 
but they were they were they were saying that uh, twist and shout was uh, invented by the Beatles. It was the Four Tops, and then the Isley Brothers who did twist and shout, uh, twist and shout. But uh, in this in this uh, this uh, this uh, series, it begins with uh, Beatles getting credit for twist and shout. So it happens all the time in music. Stravinsky did a ragtime. You know, I mean, it's just, they just, it's just new blood. It's like a renewal uh, when they come in contact with black art. Well, speaking of this sort of thing, another thing that this play does is it offers a reappraisal of the Julian Schnabel film. You mentioned <laughs> Ju- Julian Schnabel earlier. But, Listen, I think in the popular culture, most people's understanding of Basquiat as a human being, like any kind of biographical understanding of Basquiat is more likely than not to be drawn from that film, at mm-hmm. least for a certain generation. Mm-hmm. My generation, like I remember that film came out, it was considered cool. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, Basquiat. And it's this, you know, and I think a lot of people draw their understanding of him and his life and his work from that film, at least in part. And there's a quote from Jim Jarmusch, the right, filmmaker, right, right. who says that he wouldn't see the film right. because Basquiat was not a fan of Schnabel's when he was alive and that they were, in fact, rivals. Yeah. And you make a great point, or the play makes a great point, that like it would be like Sonny Liston no, no, like, like, making uh, a- Joe what? Frazier. Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier. Yeah, sorry. Making a Joe. film about Muhammad Ali. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So it, it's interesting that- Someone would make a film, a biopic about an artistic rival of theirs, a contemporary. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if most people who see that film realize that this was the fact. Well, it shows him stumbling around the village and, uh, you know, living in cardboard boxes. I mean, was, and uh, the, scene, the scene that I thought was the most revealing was when they go, there, there's a scene in Warhol's uh, loft of the factory where there are paintings of Schnabel, who's very young and lean, and these paintings were never done. He made that up. And then there's there's a scene where uh, I thought revealing as well was when Basquiat draws a picture of Schnabel's daughter, and Schnabel puts down the drawing and says, "Oh, you look better than that." And then the scene where he urinates in the uh, the stairway, and when Schnabel goes on television, he says, "Well, he was marking his territory by scent." And I said, "Well, yeah, that's what animals do. I mean, it implies that you know he's sort of like animalistic." And there's some other digs at him uh, throughout the uh, film, so I call it uh, Julian Schnabel's home movie, you know, because he has his relatives in it, and it's sort of like a a a. Uh, a movie where he aggrandizes himself over that of a dead man. Now, even Jeffrey Wright, who's a good guy, since he bought all of his dinner, came to my play and bought. So he's a good guy. <laughs> but, a good actor. Yeah, great actor. He might get an Academy Award. That's but, right. But he uh, he he denounced that role. He said that uh, the role he played. He said that uh, that Schnabel showed Basquiat as uh, passive when Basquiat was really dangerous. And that is, I think that something that I come away from this play thinking a lot about is obviously Basquiat got to speak for himself in his paintings. Mm -hmm. 
that's the place to find him. Mm -hmm. But because he had a very limited family life Mm -hmm. and because he was so young when he became Mm -hmm. famous, I think that hinders a person's ability maybe to form solid friendships Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you don't know quite who's sincere in their, in their, um, friendship and who's trying to, you know, get something from you. So it creates a vacuum in a situation where he so rarely got to speak for himself. And because he died so young, Mm -hmm. that vacuum gets filled with things like Julian Schnabel's film and other people, you know, telling stories and talking from limited perspectives, Mm -hmm. but we never hear from Basquiat himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of part of what this play is attempting to examine and to rectify. And I think that the uh, statistic that I pointed to earlier, which appears in the play, that there are so many angry faces in Basquiat paintings. Mm-hmm. As soon as I read that, I was like, yes, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. true. You know, mm-hmm. like you think about his work mm-hmm. and the skulls and the, uh, you know, the little cartoon faces or whatever you want to call them that he would draw, not a lot of smiles. Mm-hmm. And there was a real ferocity, like a ferocious intelligence, but also an anger in him and an almost real-time response because he was so prolific and was working so hard, often under the influence of drugs, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. which is something else we can talk about. He was often in his work responding in real time to things that he was seeing in the culture and in the news. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In connection with the research of this play, I found that the, uh, the slave owners gave their slaves cocaine. I didn't know that yeah, until I read it. I didn't this. know it either. I didn't know it either until I stumbled upon the research and that increased production. And I think that's what happened at uh, uh, No Say's uh, basement because he was painting around the clock and cocaine was available. And see, my point about her or that, those, that situation is that I was in some, you know, uptown places like the Dakota where people had drugs but they were so wealthy, there was no issue of it. And so I said that there was cocaine. Some One person said in that basement, there was cocaine everywhere. And this was at a time when thousands of black and Puerto Rican kids were getting busted for a joint, you know, possession. So that was, that was something to take note of. But I think uh, she knew he was taking cocaine, but she looked the other way. I didn't say that she was responsible for his taking cocaine, but I think people just sort of like looked the other way. As long as he keeps making these paintings yeah. six a week, make six or seven paintings a week is I what think, he was doing. I think that's what started his uh, really serious drug addiction. You know, that, that scene uh, where he just had a lot of cocaine. The, I think, most poignant section of the play is this kind of imagined monologue by Richard Pryor. Yeah. who had a, a relationship with Basquiat, which I did not know about. They met, yeah. And I think the play posits that Basquiat was happy and sober in Hawaii. Right, made and so, some was Richard, trips. so was Richard Pryor. 
Yeah, as was Richard Pryor. And so it's kind of this wistful, mournful imagining of what might have happened to Basquiat had he been able to escape New York and go to a place like Hawaii or go to uh, Haiti Mm -hmm. and settle down and get away and get sober and leave behind all of these opportunists who were taking advantage of him and putting pressure on him that was not good for him. Well, I didn't go to Haiti or Hawaii. I went to Los Angeles. <laughs> and and the way I was treated in New York, I mean, I was like, you know, just sought after. So I went to Los Angeles. So I was living in this, my wife, Carla, she's working up in the mountains at a camp that was run by Eddie Rickenbacker. Remember him? No. Eddie Rickenbacker, the Flying Tigers in World War II. Oh, okay. A real okay. right winger. And she was teaching a theater class up there. And there were the, all these blonde, blue-eyed people who were plotting the right-wing takeover then, even then, in the 1960s. And so I was in this apartment all alone, you know, most of the time, writing my second novel, Yellowback Radio Broke Down, which Richard Pryor stole and took to Blazing Saddles. And that's a, there's an article coming out about that, and there's a book been published on that. And my only companion, actually, my only regular companion was an old white guy named Old Man Mason. He wore a Stetson, he wore a Stetson hat. Where were you? Where were were you in Los Angeles? Or yeah, were you in I was in Los Angeles. In a, but what part? What part of town? Echo Park Canyon. Oh, okay, yeah. And right down from uh, Amy McPherson's temple. And ironically, my wife wrote a big article about Amy McPherson uh, a couple of years ago and got a pro- got, got nominated for a Los Angeles Press Club award. But it, you know, how history turns around and around. But anyway, I was there in this apartment working on my second novel. I didn't have a car. You know, I had a friend named uh, Robert Gover, who was a millionaire at that point. He'd bring me out to Malibu on the weekends, but I, I was just all alone. So that was my Hawaii and that was my Haiti. Because I think, as I said, if I remained in New York, I would have been, I would have died of an lo- overdose of affection. And, over, and he died of an overdose of affection and maybe contempt at the same time. Well, I want to talk to you a bit about your life and career while I have sure, you. Sure. And you mentioned Los Angeles. You mentioned this move to California. It is where you have spent the bulk of your life now. You've lived in Northern California, in Berkeley, and then in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is where you have made your life. But you began your life in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I read that your mother commissioned your very first piece of writing. Yeah, she did. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about that? <laughs> I guess that might be the case for a lot of writers now that I think about it. But she she paid you to write a poem. She, uh, I wrote about that in New York Review of Books. Uh, there's an article I wrote a few months ago uh, entitled The Buffalo I Knew. And I got a photo of my mother there. My mother finally wrote a book herself. So she, uh, she was a... Uh, you might call her a, a union organizer without a union. So she uh, participated in two strikes as she organized. Uh, one was for hotel workers, and uh, that led to better pay for the, these black women who were working in the hotel, hotel uh, downtown Statler, the Statler Hotel. In Buffalo. Yeah, and then she- Because you, you moved, just so people are oriented, you were born in Chattanooga and then moved to Buffalo. When I was about four years old. When you were four years old, okay. And then uh, she organized a strike at uh, a department store 
because the black women were consigned to uh, stock work and not sales. And she became the first black salesperson after organizing a strike. And they threw her, they had her attend a birthday party. So there she, there's a, the photos in the New Yorker books where she's the only black person there at this party. And she asked me to write a poem for the, uh, the, the person who was being honored on her birthday. So I, I did a rhyme piece. I didn't never met the woman. And I've been rhyming ever since, which is, which is uh, considered like square. I mean, it's considered, you know, after, after free verse, free verse dominates uh, the poetry scene, which is sort of like compressed short stories. And I think a lot of people don't have, don't rhyme because they don't have the ear. So Carolyn Kaiser, the Pulitzer Prize winner said I had the ear. So, you know, I just, I just did a, I'm getting an interview in a couple of hours about a poem I wrote about the Golden State Warriors basketball team. That's a hit out here. And it's in rhyme, so I rhyme a lot. But that was what you. That what'd was, you get paid? What'd you get paid for that first poem? I don't remember how much she paid me. <laughs> I don't remember, but she said, "When you go on, she called me GW after George. I was named after George Washington. My nickname. I was born on February twenty second. She said, oh, "GW, I want you to write a poem for this movie." So I wrote it, you know, and uh, that was my first commissioned poem. But I've done public poetry. I my poetry's on sidewalks out here. I got a poem as part of an installation at the BART station in Richmond. And uh, I got a poem in, in uh, the Jazz Center in the alley there. They did a poem about uh, going going uh, jazz heaven. Uh, when I die, let them go to heaven, let them go to hell. When I die, I want to go to jazz. And they did that. It's, in a, it's an alley called, uh, the alley is called Raise Up Off Me Alley on Franklin Street, near Franklin Street. And it was named after the autobiography of Hampton Hawes, the pianist. The title of his autobiography, Raise Up Off Me. And he was uh, he was in Lexington for narcotics possession. And he's pardoned by Kennedy. Oh. Kennedy says, the only thing this guy wants to do is play piano, man. Let him out. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, this speaks to something else I wanted to talk to you about yeah. is the breadth of your interests. You're a very prolific writer. You you write a lot, you publish a lot, but you also write and publish in a variety of different genres. Everything from poetry, novels, stories, nonfiction, essay. I mean, you do it all and very heavily influenced by jazz music as I'm well. There's jazz. also- I'm yeah, jazz, you, yeah. So you got a lot going on. Can you just talk ab- about- that part of your creative life and the fact that you are, uh, what is it, polyphonic? You kind of express yourself in all of these different modes? Well, you know, the, the kind of writer I am, I have to do different things to get through, to get attention, you know, or, or get people to remark, make remarks about my work. So if they, the New York Times hasn't reviewed a book of mine since uh, a long time. You know, I've had about seven books out. They've ignored them. So part of my uh, strategy is a global strategy. So I studied Japanese and wrote a novel called Japanese by Spring, which is ironic because you can't learn Japanese by spring. But I was thinking, you know, one of these, learn Italian in two weeks, you know. Right, right. And that got me a trip to Japan. And as a result of that novel, I was invited twice 
uh, to uh, China. And the last visit, I went to Beijing first. I was invited to Beijing. Then I went to Hunan. And my my uh, spouse, Carla Blank, uh, directed a play here, excuse me, a play in uh, Hunan with all Chinese cast that was banned here. PSA, uh, PBS was supposed to do it. They backed out. So I had to go to a totalitarian country and get it done. <laughs> So I think I think I try to I try to do an international audience uh, in order to survive. I know what happens to black writers when they get pigeonholed. So uh, I studied uh, one of Chopin's uh, nocturnes on a piano for about four months under a Ukrainian instructor on Zoom. The guy's town's being bombed. He's teaching me, and uh, I wrote a poem about that, which is going to be published in Polish. So I just found that the way I should survive is to do multiple genres. If they stop you in uh, the theater, you go to an op-ed. If they stop you in an op-ed, you can go to a poem. Uh, it's like a full-court press, what they call a basketball. So uh, yeah. that's my global strategy. Well, you have, <clears throat> you have said, I think that my greatest accomplishment has been to write in different languages and genres mm-hmm. and to maintain a black and multicultural fan base. Mm-hmm. In this country and in other countries, right. I have I have never heard a writer. I've done a lot of these conversations over the years. I've never heard a writer talk about that kind of strategy, or even have a strategy. Period. Mm-hmm. You know, other than like just try to get into print. But you have really made an explicit effort to write in other languages, to pursue readerships in other countries, and to try to globalize your readership. Well, we used the Hindi language in the latest play, The Conductor, where we gave uh, some uh, Indian actors roles that they wouldn't get from from uh, Bollywood or whatever they call it, that junk that they do over there. So uh, I studied Hindi, and there's a Hindi language that, that's introduced in that play called The Conductor, which is about... Uh, how some uh, Indians are bringing the caste system to the United States, you know, like Ramaswamy and people like that. And uh, that play ran, that, that was a substitute play for the, for the Slave Love Caviar. They said, well, bring another play. So I wrote The Conductor about how these billionaires are influencing uh, school board selections. Like they were behind a recall of, school board members out here because they felt that they were too prone to embrace diversity. And I tracked that down to two or three billionaires from Silicon Valley who were buying that whole thing. So that play was performed at the uh, Theater for the New City. The new play goes into the origin of hip hop. Which And what is it called? It's called uh, The Shine Challenge 2024. There's There's a tradition of toasts that come from the criminal underworld uh, and uh, written, written anonymously. And they surfaced, some of them surfaced around 1912, in the 1900s. What the hip hoppers did was to add audio equipment. I mean, they're, they're, they're done in verse. They have the same qualities, the same boasting, uh, you know, some of the same daring material and same <laughs> misogyny in a way. Uh, uh, but see, I think it's a, a, a mistake by some scholars who say that hip hop is 50 years old. It's older than that. That's not a Yoruba, Yoruba language. You, you, you find some features of hip hop in West African oral tradition. But um, this particular play is about a, a, and one of the reasons I wrote this play, this happened like I wrote 
the Basquiat place, you know, overheard conversation and some guy telling me something. I asked three, I asked members of three generations of blacks had they heard of this toast? And they hadn't. And I said, they have assimilated, the same thing they do with the Irish and the Italians. They've assimilated some of our origin stories out of us. Because this play, this toast was very famous. I mean, people had different variations of it. But it was all about uh, the Titanic. And this a toast arose, I think it's about maybe 30 lines. This toast arose where they had a black man on a Titanic. And he was a stoker down at the very bottom, shoveling coal for the steam. He's the first one to notice that the ship is taking water. And he goes to upstairs and, you know, in the first class, you had the Astors and the Strausses. The, the Strausses owned Macy's department store. You had all these millionaires up there on first class. And the, the thing was designed like a five-star hotel. That's what was the ambition of the builders of the Titanic. He says, he tells the captain that the ship is taking water. Captain says, we have all this great, beautiful equipment down there and that's, that can't be true. And then finally, the ship is sinking. This character named Shine goes upstairs and dies overboard and starts swimming toward Harlem, okay? <laughs> and all these millionaires are on the first, on the deck offering him all kind of bribes, like, you know, and if, if, if he would save them. And he says, get your ass in the water and swim like me. So now the Worcester group is doing, they, they're doing a version of that. They're doing toast. They're not doing the complete uh, shine. What I've taken from maybe 35 lines is I've written a 99 script play drawing out some of the, uh, some of the subjects covered, like immigration, Edwardian values, engineering. I've drawn all those out and uh, focus upon them. And uh, I've written the play, uh, Shine, The Shine Challenge, because uh, I want someone in the future generation to even enlarge upon what I've done. Well, you are a busy guy and you get a lot done. And I read that you, I, I want to say your wife said that you work everywhere, in bed, on the sofa, even in front of the television, uh, often from before dawn until you break for an afternoon uh, piano session. I guess you play the piano or you take a walk, but you're you're still going. You have not stopped since you started, really, right? Yeah, well, old age is not a death sentence. <laughs> I, mean, I look at I look at uh, Biden. He's just a youngster. In comparison, I'll be eighty six next month. Wow, and, and you look great. Well, thank you. And he says. Uh, you know, they're saying, oh, Biden's too old. This guy's running the world. I mean, I mean, he brought NATO together. I mean, he's done all he's done all the great things. And they say, well, you know, he looks like he looks like he he's stuttering and and you know, they put him on this this clown, this buffoon. This guy's really sort of like mentally ill. Uh is getting all the press, immediate. So that's how it goes. Mm. So uh I have to I ha we have a comp I guess we have a little competitive thing. She's gotten nominated for a Los Angeles Press Club uh, award for two years in a row. And I've been writing essays for 50 years, maybe, and I never got one of those. Well, so I get gotta, to I, it. Come on. I got I to gotta, <laughs> gotta really shape up and do better. <laughs> well, 
you know, you mentioned this earlier about the New York Times not reviewing some of your recent books. And there was a line that I read as I was prepping that I want to read to you mm-hmm. and hear you comment on because it is a unique station that you occupy as a quote, like it says, you live a strange double life as quote, a canonical author of the 20th century author of mumbo jumbo hailed by Harold Bloom as one of the 500 most mm-hmm. important books in the Western canon. That's yours. Mm-hmm. But you're also an underground voice now in the 21st century. I don't know if I can think of any author off the top of my head who occupies both of those strata. That's a, that's an interesting place to be. Is it a frustrating place to be? Well, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a black audience that'll be with me until the last, what do you say? The last dog dies. I get constant stream of awards from them. This year I got the uh, Hurston Wright Award at this uh, great ceremony in Washington. I wasn't able to attend, I attended by Zoom. But I continue to get uh, honors from uh, black audiences and black institutions. For my plays, for example, the Adelco Awards, my director got my actors get awards. So I'm not underground to them. I'm not underground in the globe, for example, uh, my daughter and I published a book out of the house here that we're going to print and looks just as good as the stuff that they published in New York. And it includes uh, testimonies from writers that we know all over the world about their experiences with COVID. You know, China, Africa, uh, Europe, all these uh, writers. And uh, so we're going to publish that. Is that like an oral history or? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. COVID. So, uh, so it, our situation is not like that of the black writers of the 1940s and 50s, because when uh, New York publishers stopped publishing them, they were done. You know, when Richard Wright's last book was rejected, I read the book, Island of Hallucinations, he was done. When Chester Himes stopped being published by uh, New York publishers, they, you know, they were done. But now with uh, with the kind of uh, print technology we have right now, you know, everybody can get a book out there and uh, you can get uh, all sorts of places to publish your book. And there's a situation called print on demand. I've got about five or six books by other authors published through print on demand. So we're guaranteed a sort of like permanent publication for the first time. Yeah. I mean, it's more democratic. I, I mean, think so. Yeah. That's for sure. It's yeah. easier yeah. for people to get a book out there than it ever has been and to get distrib- you know, distributed. You can sell a book online anywhere in the world, practically. Right. It's uh, an ebooks and the whole thing. Right. So that's a positive, but it's hard to find a readership. Yeah. Well, uh, I was lucky enough to come along when, when publishers were still publishing experimental books. I think in the 1970s, the salespersons took over. For example, I was able to get Doubleday in 67, 69, 72, to publish three of my experimental books. Those books would not be published today. Mumbo Jumbo, 50 years old, you know, wouldn't be published today. So the salespersons took over. I got Ma- Norman Pritchard's Matrix, N.H. Pritchard's Matrix published by Doubleday. That's considered a avant-garde book, and now he's considered one of the uh, antecedents of the language poets. So the salespersons took over. I submitted a book. I, I, had, a, I had a young black editor asked me to submit a book to uh, one of his, his publishers where he was working. And the salesperson said it would only draw critical praise and awards. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> so I think the salespersons have uh, taken over. 
well, that means we've got to create new new roads, yeah, right? Like yeah. new ways of doing it. Yeah. And it's inspiring to me that you're still at it and doing these things and experimenting and raising hell. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful for the time. Uh, I congratulate you on this play, The Slave Who Loved Caviar. I'm curious to know what the plans are with it. Is it going to be, I know there are little stagings happening here and there. Mm-hmm. Like are, are there, is there any vision for what's going to happen with it in a formal sense? Well, we had a vid- we've made a video of it, which we plan to put on YouTube. Oh, so anybody can watch it. Yeah, so we'll let you know. Okay. Well, I appreciate the time and uh, I wish you well. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate this. All right, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Ishmael Reed. His play is called The Slave Who Loved Caviar, now in print from Archway Editions. You can find Ishmael on the internet at ishmaelreed.org. He has a Twitter feed. He does have an Instagram, but I'm not sure how active he is over there. But, you know, track him down online. Again, the play is called The Slave Who Loved Caviar. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to hear from me once a week in your inbox, sign up for the official Brad Listy newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com. It is free. And if you had a good experience, if you like this show, if you listen regularly, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, I would appreciate it if you would give this show a rating and write a little review, if that's an option, wherever you listen to this podcast. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps new listeners find the show. If you want to join the Other People Book Club, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Every 30 days, you get a new book delivered to your door. I interview book club authors on this program, so it makes for an enriching and holistic literary experience. Go sign up for the book club over at otherppl.com. Likewise, if you want to get some other people gear, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Last but not least, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief. And tell them everything available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if that sounds interesting, check it out. It's my book, it's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Wednesday, my guest will be Vanita Blackburn author of a debut novel called Dead in Long Beach, California, available from MCD Books, an imprint of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I had a great time meeting Vanita Blackburn and talking with her about this new book of hers, among other things. So that is coming up in just a couple of days. Stay tuned.